Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. When you save on auto insurance for driving safe with USAA SafePilot, you'll feel like a big deal. Even in a traffic jam. Save up to 30% with USAA SafePilot. Restrictions apply. Mike Evans, journalist, author, and musician, welcome. Um, we're going to talk about your book, uh, The Who, much too much. But I want to start with you and just sort of get an idea about where where, and when you were brought up and what sort of music your parents played and when you rebelled against that and what sort of music did you listen to? Okay. Well, it was a classic um, 1950s kind of childhood. I was born... I was born in the Dark Ages in uh, 1941, so I'm about the same age as Pete Townsend. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> my so my parents listened to all the predictable kind of pop music of the 1940s. Uh, you are my sunshine, and uh, you're the only girl in the world, and all, all that kind of stuff. My dad was a bit of a thought he was a bit of a crooner when he got up at the, the working man's club, you know. So he used to sing all that stuff. But um, I had no musical. Um, I remember I had piano lessons for about five minutes. I got so fed up with playing these scales. But this is when I was about seven years old that I gave up, which I regret ever since, of course, because <clears throat> um, piano is a wonderful introduction to things. And then I, I, I first rebelled against, as with most of us in that era, um, when rock and roll arrived, but not just rock and roll, because jazz, even though it had been going for donkey's years, jazz hit that teenage main mainstream at the same time with a lot of people. Uh, and so I was kind of simultaneously excited by jazz, rock and roll, and the crossover of Skiffle, which again, hundreds of people were, millions of kids in Britain particularly. Uh, so the, I got involved in a skiffle group, learnt, learnt four chords in each key uh, and thrashed about with that for a year or two. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
Um, and so by that time, by the time you got to the end of the 50s, the rock and roll thing had faded. It was kind of Fats Domino, Little Richard, all that had kind of left the charts. And uh, and pop music was Cliff and the Shadows. And uh, so it's, <laughs> we were all very snobby. And John Lennon wants to call me a jazz snob because I didn't... <laughs> I mean, I'm um, a bit, I'm a bit younger than you, but I remember when I was a teenager. Uh, for me, Bowie was, you know, the biggest figure in, you know, yes, I was a teenager yes, in like 1972, yeah, yeah. 73. Yeah. But he and he represented uh, more to me than just music. He represented a sort of other society, absolutely, which I could belong to. Yes, and get yes. away from my parents' society, as it were, and sort of go into a different world. Was there a figure? for you that represented the other where you wanted to go to and where you were not at as a child. Yeah, there was. And of course it was like fantasy land because, because by the time you were a, a committed jazz fan or American folk music fan, because of the skipper thing, your heroes were mainly American black men. <laughs> so it was even more, it was even more removed from the experience in North Wales where I came from. Um, so your heroes were like your, your heroes were Ray Charles and used to go around with shades on that wrapped around like that, you know, <laughs> and um, and 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 talking kind of beatnik slang, you know. The, the the beats were the other kind of heroes, the the, the writers. So you kind of talked in beatnik slang and said, "Yeah, man," and uh, let's split, you know, <laughs> all this stuff. How did you get into a band though? So I was a bit late. I was a bit late in all that. I'd done the kind of skiffle thing and and. And never pursued that particularly much, the guitar. And um, I, I went to London to college. Um, and um, for some reason, I just acquired very cheaply a, a battered old saxophone, uh, just because I fancied it, you know, because I was a died-in-the-world jazz fan by then. But the interesting thing was that simultaneously in, in London, this was 61, 62, the R&B thing was starting at the Marquee. And I was at Regent Street Polytechnic, which is about five minutes walk from the Marquee. <laughs> so we used to go, so this was like our local club. And and every Tuesday night, or was it Thursdays, Alexis Corner had his R&B nights. And, uh, and uh, Alexis was the kind of um, melting pot for that very early English R&B boom. So his, his drummers were, were Charlie Watts, Ginger Baker, his his bass player was often um, was uh, Jack Bruce, and so on. So they, these were the kind of un, unknowingly the foundations of the and the Stones used to get up and play occasionally, or parts of the Stones. And so this is like an amazing scene. And then simultaneously in Liverpool, because I had a girlfriend in Liverpool by this time, so I used to hitchhike up and down to Liverpool. Simultaneously in, in Liverpool, the Beatles were playing at the Cavern and neither the twain should meet. See, nobody knew nobody knew about the other one. And um, and I was kind of party to both these things. And Pete Brown, who was already quite well known as a poet, became a mate of mine. And, and and he said, uh, I said, I need to get some sax lessons. And he said, well, I'll introduce you to Dick Hextall Smith, who played with Alexis. So we met in a pub one night and Dick had this weird guy with him, his ginger head, very cropped, short hair called Peter Baker, who of course was ginger. <laughs> and uh, so, so that's how I met Dick. And I say simultaneously in, in Liverpool, the Beatles were playing at the Cavern. And I remember one lunchtime at, at a Cavern session, the bands were 
quite accessible to the to, to the kids in the audience then because there was a, there was a stage there was a, a some chairs and then at the back there was a kind of little coffee bar which just sold coffee coke and hideous cavern soup and uh, this is lunchtime sessions and so the bands the bands would come and mingle with the kids getting a coke or something you know and so I I called Lennon and said um, have you heard about this R and B thing going on in London he said no what's that you know. I said, oh, I said, you want to hear it, man? I said, uh, it was a big double-page spread in the Melody Maker last week. And he said, the Melody Maker, that's for fucking jazz fans. He said, jazz snobs. I only read the NME. But <laughs> what's fascinating about, you know, I mean, you write a book about The Who, but you actually performed on the same stage. You supported The Who in your band. My first band was an rhythm and blues soul band called the Clayton Squares, which... Played support to a lot of people, but I don't think that included The Who. But um, when I know we played with The Who was when I was in a band called The Liverpool Scene, which is a kind of poetry, late 60s poetry come music band, you know. And in those days, all that kind of stuff was mixed up. You know, you could do anything. Um, so, you know, we were, we, we toured, we were the support with Les, Led Zeppelin's first UK tour. You know, this poetry band, it's like madness. So um, yeah, so with the Liverpool scene, we played with the Who several times. So so you did get to get to know them, and then I, I kept in contact with bizarrely later in life with Townsend briefly because I was I worked for a few years at the Musicians Union as their kind of rock music man, um, and Pete was very keen on that. He was keen on kind of musicians getting a better deal and you know that kind of thing. So he used to kind of voices support from time to time for what I was doing with the union. Um, and then I remember one night in, around the, in, in the late sixties, actually, in the, the speakeasy club, I was, I was with um, Roger McGough, the poet, and, and he introduced me to Keith Moon, who was just sitting at the end of the table, you know. So he had this evening drinking with Keith Moon, who then took me over and said, have you met Jimmy? And it was Jimi Hendrix, who just, who just hit London, you know, and he was this young guy, you know. So, but all that was kind of part of the course at the time. You didn't think any anything historic about it. It was just, yeah, okay, man, you know. And, um, and it's only in retrospect that these things have any, have any significance, you know what I mean? You, you were never tempted to smash up your saxophone on stage then? No, right? no, no. It cost me too much. The good, the good, one, the good one did. <laughs> you mentioned Led Zeppelin, but you, you jammed with them yeah, yeah, on the, one performance. Tell me about that. Well, we, we did this um, short British tour, which was their first UK tour, about six or seven venues. Usual Bristol, Birmingham, Manchester... And then ending up um, at the Albert Hall on Sunday night uh, in the beginning of some week of concerts called the Pop Proms. So the opening night of this Pop Proms was the end of the, was the last night of the Zeppelin tour. And uh, so it was, on, it was on the Albert Hall and we used to kind of occasionally jam with them in the band room anyway, just when you're all getting tuned up, you know, 12 bar blues kind of thing. And so we decided to, they said, there was another band on as well called Bloodwind Pig, and they had a sax player as well. So one of, it was probably Jimmy Page, said, do you want to get up on the Long Tall Sally as like an encore when we finished our set? Because two saxes would suit it very well, you know. So we said, yeah, okay, so that was it. So we kind of just did this jam at the end of their their their, their last uh, set, you know, their last 
concert on this thing. <laughs> so wh- why did you become a music journalist? How did that sort of morph into being a music journalist and then writing books? Alan Williams, the famous man who gave the Beatles away, had <laughs> stumbled across some tapes of the Beatles playing in Hamburg. Some some tapes of them at uh, the Star Club in Hamburg in 62. He'd stumbled across these dusty tapes and said, he phoned me up, he said, he said uh, I saw you in the Manly Maker last week. Do you do anything for them? And I said, well, not really. He said, well, you, you want to hear these tapes? So he played me these tapes. They're like re- quite remarkable. So I phoned up Ray Coleman and said, uh, do you want a piece about these? I'll, I'll write a piece about these tapes. And he said, yeah, okay. So he did this big full page thing about the hidden, the forgotten Beatle tapes and so on. So that's how I got into that really. And then, and then the Melody Maker, they had a string of freelancers around the country which the other pop papers didn't. So if a tour, say an American tour, started off in Newcastle or Liverpool rather than kicking off in London, which they often did as a kind of testers, the melody maker would beat, all, beat the enemy to the, to, the, to the review because they'd phone up their man in Liverpool or their man in Newcastle. They had a string of freelancers. Uh, so I was their man in Liverpool for a while. So let's come to the book because, yeah, yeah. you know, I, I presume either you put into the publishers, I want to write a book about that, or, or they come to you and say, we'd like a book about this. I don't know which way that happened, uh, but I'd like to know what your first thoughts were about how you would like to, how you wanted to structure the book and how you wanted to approach it. Well, um, as with lots of things in publishing, they, 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 they come out of not some brilliant idea out the sky by the author or the publisher, but often just a result of conversations. And with all those bands, you know, the the Who, the Beatles, Bob Dylan, there's so much out there, you think, oh, you, you can't do anything else. And 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 I was just thinking, well, the only thing I don't remember seeing, and I'm sure there's one out there somewhere, was we, we, in the fashion that they were planning to do these books, was um, a, couple, a book about the Who linked by the albums. So it, another, basically, a, a, another biography of the Who, but but making the albums the, the, the signposts. Uh, and there hadn't been a, a decent book of the room for some time. Uh, and and every, every couple of years, Pete and Roger Daltrey would get together again and in some formation or another. So, so a, there was a kind of, there was a kind of bit of continuity about it up to the present day, even though it's fairly nebulous, you know, because you never know when the next one, if, if there's going to be a next get together. Um, but, uh, but they, they did bring out the album called Who, um, just before, you know, not long before we finished the book. So that was included. Uh, so it just seemed uh, a, a decent idea to develop, you know, uh, and we, th- that was it. I mean, what's, uh, I really find it fascinating that the foreword, which is written by Keith Alton, is, is um, it really sets up the book really nicely because he tells, um, he was a publicity manager, I think, for 16 yeah, years, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 71 to 87 or something. And he tells um, a story, his story of when he was 16 and uh, interviewed the band and what happened. Can you tell me about that? Because I think it sort of sets up what's to come in the book and and really the idea of who they were and sort of <laughs> how um outrageous and how their sort of interpersonal relationships come out in that small foreword yeah well that's right because he, he he chanced upon them in in that period when they were 
you know, more, more anarchic than they were later. Um, and uh, as you say, it, it, it encapsulated the fact that putting putting a rock band together in those days was at least at least fifty percent of it was for a laugh. You know, it wasn't for it wasn't for some musical ideal or not like the R and B bands where you, you you know you were trying to you know like the early the early Fleetwood Mac wanted to be you know what's his name Jeremy Spencer wanted to be Elmore James you know they kind of they, they had this the vision you know it's a great vision which they may or may not have um, achieved and even though in their earliest manifestation the Who too were an R and B band. Um, and, you know, they did a couple of R&B numbers on their first, I mean, numbers they hadn't written on their first album, for instance. This is Bo Diddley, um, I'm a Man, or whatever. Um, so they were they were clearly into that area of music, but uh, but they weren't dedicated in that way that they were kind of po-faced, serious blues men, or wanting to be serious blues men. And so... The, so the fifty percent doing it for a laugh was probably ninety percent in Keith Moon's case, you know. Uh, but they were all good. That was the point. It's one thing that's where the, the kind of punk ethos fell to pieces. Really, that the punk ethos was you weren't taking it too seriously, but at the same time, you you, you didn't bother about doing it very well. <laughs> whereas, whereas uh, they were all good musicians in their own way, you know, in a kind of in, unschool, as unschooled, if you like, in terms of formal training, as unschooled as as the punks were. They were all brought up in post-war Britain, a bit like yourself. Yeah, um, yeah. But they had the, they had quite different childhoods, didn't they? Can you tell me what the differences were between them as they were um, growing up? Um, well, Pete certainly had a, had a fairly unique childhood because both his parents were uh at, at significant points in their lives were professional musicians his, you know his dad was in dance bands and his and his mother sang with dance bands usually different dance bands hence a lot of friction in the family you know she um so, so that was a very musical background if you like uh whereas the, um, the others were all from fairly modest backgrounds, but but they, 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 but they weren't. Um, I don't think they were particularly musical in that sense. But that, did that mean you know? You said that you know people just sort of fell into the idea of going into you know this is a good idea. I'm going to be in a band, but not really actually thinking about what they wanted yeah. to to achieve. But was that the difference between Pete Townsend and 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 the rest? Because Pete actually had this background and also um he had a different education didn't he as well so was was yeah. there a difference in their ambitions really I, I, in that way uh i i suppose so yeah but but, but then again that music by by that time was a great was a great leveler you know and it was a bit like the art school thing that you know pete was at art school and and, and the art school was another great leveler because kids from the old grammar school system and kids that went through the secondary mod schools and all that, they could often end up at art school where they wouldn't end up at university. Uh, and it was, um, hence a lot of rock and roll players or blues players or whatever came out of the English art school system, including all the famous ones we know about, you know, Ray Davis, John Lennon. Um, 
And um, so I think that was a great leveler. And, and, and so the kind of enthusiasms that you had as a teenager combined with um, fairly, for want of a better word, bohemian kind of attitude to life in general was a sort of leveler in a way. I mean, there were there were essentially two bands that that came together, and then um, Keith Moon was the addition. What changed when Keith Moon joined to really make them the the Who? What changed? Yeah, that's that right. Because there was the Detours, and we became the Detours. Yeah, um, there was the Squadronaires, wasn't it? The squad, like, that, that's right. Squadronaires, yes, right. I should say. Yeah, they, they they were unlikely, as you say, they were unlikely musical allies, but. It, just worked. When, when did they become mods and why did they become mods? Ooh, um, well, with, with, with Kit Lambert and, uh, and particularly and Chris Stamp, their, their, their original managers, those two characters were very aware of kind of had the button on trends and teenage fashion, probably more than the who did you know in terms of the just observe, as observers uh so they they were in this kind of environment where they they were becoming uh aware of their image pete with his smashing the guitar thing which originally astounded kit lambert and chris stamp they, they originally attracted them he got that from art school. He got this notion of autodestructive art and all these kind of fancy ideas. Um, and uh, and whether he first broke a guitar out of temper and then said, oh, this is autodestructive art, or the other way around, is open to debate forever. <laughs> I think it's probably the former, you know, he probably fucked this and then later on said, oh, that's, that's a good idea. And of course, they and they thought it was worth including in the act. The managers did because they were very aware of the visual side of things. So I think it was all that, and then pop art, of course, which tied in with the American pop artists and targets and symbols and in Union Jacks and Stars and Stripes. What were um, all that was brought in on the on the pop art uh, level, and and mod for want of a better word, mod culture just adopted all these things, like in the same way that why did mods adopt Italian scooters? You know what I mean? <laughs> Particularly, I mean, the Teds didn't have Italian scooters, or the, the Rockers didn't have Italian scooters. What, what, you know, what's this all about? So is it, they're just kind of, like all these teenage things, they come from all sorts of angles, and they just adopted them. And the Who adopted um, uh, the pop art thing, and it coincided very well with um, with the start of Ready Steady Go, the TV program, because if you remember the sets on Ready Steady Go were all kind of pop arty, arrows and road signs and things. Uh, and I remember a mate of mine who um, is not quite a famous photographer called Clive Arrowsmith, but it, at the time he was at the Royal College and I bumped into him one day in a pub in London. I said, oh, Clive, what are you doing these days? And he said, oh, I'm at the Royal College. I said, oh, okay. He said, but we're... Um, we, we've got a great job on the side. They, they've recruited some of us to, to to paint sets for this new TV programme. So it was these guys from the Royal College who were doing the sets for Ready, Steady, Go. Uh, and, and, of course, the, the Who completely coincided with that. The first TV show, I, I don't know if it was Ready, Steady, Go, but it was the first time they prominently appeared on TV. 
and um, and they became like almost the house band. They were on there more often than anybody else. I've got a, I've, book, I've got a book here about Red, Ready to Ready Go, and they far outstripped any other bands for the times they were on it. You know, there's a great story about Jimmy Page and him being in the studio when they were when they were initially recording, and and uh, then him being on was it was he on I Can't Explain on one of the early tracks? Oh yes, yes. He, he was because um, I think it was there was one track where they refused to have him on it because he'd just done the day before, literally. Or, no, it was a hit, he, but he'd just done it. Be, it had gotten to the charts the day before. Um, um, you Really Got Me by the Kings. And he played that guitar solo. Uh, and and so they used to, because he was just a, a session man who was also an R&B player because he played in the Yardbirds and so on. But um, they were, um, he was like a house rock and roll kind of session player. If they needed a funky guitar solo, they'd phone up Jimmy. And and so he was just in the studio at the time. They rode him in. So I, I think it was, it made me, I can't explain. Yeah, it would be, I can't explain because it was the, the, the first time. Yeah, that's right. And they rode him in to do this guitar solo, and and uh, and Townsend would have nothing of it, you know. He said, "I'm not having this guy playing, and you know, we do it ourselves, we don't do it at all." Uh, and so he, he actually didn't play on that. I think he played on the flip side. Why were so many bands during the sixties um, the victims of corruption and bad management, and ended up with very little money? Why? Why? Did that all happen during that period, do you think? And obviously it was more conspicuous when you, you, you're doing quite well. I mean, if you had suddenly had a hit record in the charts and you were still making 25 quid a week, you'd you'd start to question it, whereas we didn't have any hit records in the charts, so making 25 quid a week or what it was didn't seem too bad, you know what I mean? You just got on with it. But, um, but all those... A lot of those characters around. It was the whole system was screwed. It wasn't just individual villains like Don Arden, <laughs> but there were actual, you know, they were, they, they were, it was just the way the whole thing was structured. The, the the contracts were all weighed in favor of the managers or the record company or whoever the contract was with. Um, they, they made sure that um, any advances not just advances, but say advances on tours. If you're doing a tour and you're a, a, a costly tour, the, the, the band footed all the bills, you know, so so even though it's promoting an album by that time, you know, if, you, if you're if you an album's band later in the 60s, um, it, it, the whole thing was kind of weighed towards the business rather than the, the musicians. That's one reason why in the 70s I got involved in the MU. In the musicians' union, for precisely that reason. Well, I found, what I found really interesting about the book is that because you're going through the albums and you go through like you know the album, first album, My Generation, and you see the track My Generation, you think, wow, this is such an iconic mm. song, and they had many iconic songs, but they weren't actually that successful at that point, were they? No, 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 that's right. What you mean, the band words or the song wasn't? No, the band weren't. No, no, no. That's right. They, they, they. I mean, commercially, their biggest success was was in, in the era of the album, the, the the kind of late sixties album era. You know, via Tommy and 
after that when it became a stadium band in the States, whereas stadium bands didn't exist in the 60s. You know, the nearest thing you got to a stadium band was the Beatles playing at the local Odeon, you know, rather than the cavern. <laughs> yeah, but what's fascinating is that in retrospect, you see it very differently. You look back oh, at yeah. that and you, yeah. and you say, wow, that, you know, that's the moment or something. But yes. it wasn't. It wasn't no, the moment. No, no, you're quite right. It, it was all kind of half of the course at the time. I mean, I mean, my generation was a... Was a There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. A great, a great track and a great single when, when it occurred. But it was just one of, looking back in perspective, it was just one of many great singles that seemed to be coming out in in you know, 1965. Be a barbecue hero with delicious ultra-low net carb hero bread, buns and tortillas. Soft and fluffy, high in fiber, and with zero grams of sugar, up to 10 grams of protein, coming in at under 100 calories per serving. Oh, and did I mention they taste like their mouth-watering traditional versions? I mean, what's not to love? Use code AH10 for 10% off your first hero bread purchase at hero.co. That's AH10 for 10% off at Hero.co. The United States Border Patrol has exciting and rewarding career opportunities with the nation's largest law enforcement organization. Earn great pay, outstanding federal benefits, and up to $20,000 in recruitment incentives. Learn more online at cbp.gov career USBP. We made USAA insurance to help you save. Take advantage of discounts when you cover your home and your ride. Discover how we're helping members save at usaa.com slash bundle. Restrictions apply. You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. How integral was Kit Lambert to the success of The Who? Well... He had a kind of theatrical background. His, his mother was Constant Lambert. Um, and he um, he brought the kind of, as I say, he was obsessed, or not obsessed, but he was fascinated by by the visual side of it, the, the, the fashion side of things and so on. So I, I think he brought a kind of finesse to it, where, whereas Chris Stamp was a bit more of a, he was an East End working class lad, he was a bit more of a wheeler dealer. So he, he, he did the, he, he did that side of the, the business, you know, whereas Kit Lambert did, did the, for want of a better word, the creative side. Um, and as a, as a as a team, they worked very well. Um, one kind of feeding off the other. But um, 
No, he was very important, as I say, and he, he harnessed Pete's kind of creativity, which could have been in, in other circumstances, if you didn't have somebody encouraging you from the outside, could have just got lost in the mists of time, you know what I mean? Some crazy idea that Pete might have, just the others might have said, oh, we're not doing that. It was it just kind of got, you know what I mean? Yeah, it was a bit like the Beatles with George Martin, that he was able to focus maybe wacky ideas that they had musically into something that was both accessible, but also very radical, you know. How did Pete's lyrics sort of dif differ from the 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 lyrics and the songs of the other great artists of the era, the Beatles, the Stones and Led Zeppelin and so on? Well, not thinking of any particular songs, but they were they were they were a lot of them were fairly autobiographical. Uh you know, not directly, but they but but they, they were from his own experience or, or, or reflecting his own experience. Uh, even I mean, even you know, um, my my generation, I won't get fooled again. Or these are kind of highly personal in the way that the Beatles, for instance, were were, were much more out of the. I hate to say it, but they were out of the kind of love song "Moon Is June" tradition in the sense they were, you know. Um, they sounded like they were first person, but but they weren't talking about themselves. You know, oh, she was just 17. Well, you don't know whether there was a girl who was just 17, you know, but, but it just... So they were able to kind of stand apart and be that teenager or be that young person. Whereas I think a lot of Townsends were a bit more of, him, of himself. And the Stones, of course, were even further away from it because they, uh, they were able to probably because they grew up as kind of rhythm and blues men, they're able to have a, have a, an outside scenario that they described, you know. I mean, art is and, often you know, seen it, it's as like, conversation. It's like Mother's Little Helper or Painted Black. These were kind of, weren't necessarily from personal experience. They could have been, but but they weren't necessary. They, they, were, they, were, they were much more focusing on a, on a scenario that was out there. Yeah, I mean, for Pete, was it about compensation? Was it about working through issues that he had in his childhood? Uh, abuse was something that that was in his childhood, wasn't it? Was it? Yeah, yeah. Was it a way for him to work through those issues? Do you think? Well, yeah, I think it was because he was quite he was quite an angsty kind of person, I think. And of course, at the time, in that rock and roll lifestyle, it it, it it could either aid the, that process or they could destroy you. You know what I mean? If you're the teenage angst going on, well, all you need added to that is a load of drugs. <laughs> you can kind of kill you, you know, but at the same time, if, if you channel it or it, or it becomes channeled in a more creative direction and, and, and you kind of handle it, then, then, then it, it, it's, um, it, it can produce, great songs you know but as i say it's uh it's always hard to pin down where did where did his fascination for the idea of creating a rock opera come from where was that that base i know he'd already written this the the, the nine minute a quick one while he's away uh, right. sort of mini opera but i yeah. just wondered was that the trigger for him to to create tommy and quadrophenia or was that the or was it did it come from something else before that 
Uh, I think, like a lot of people, when they've suddenly got access to the magic of a recording studio, they 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 have what my father would have called ideas above their station. You know, <laughs> um, so um, I I think when, once you're introduced to that possibility that songs don't have to be, and and of course it was the era of the album was beginning to take over. So the idea of a pop song didn't have to be three minutes, four minutes, which originated in the days of the 78s anyway. Um, so suddenly um, you had the album track, which could be as many minutes as you wanted to the side, to the length of an album. And you had, so you had this kind of technical freedom, plus all the layers of technical um, gimmickry that was becoming available in the recording studio anyway. So there, there was kind of technical reasons why you might have these ideas above your station, which you wouldn't have had. You wouldn't have had ten years before. You know, when you were a pop band, you went in the studio, did what the producer said, and got out again, and recorded your first album like the Beatles did in a day or something. You know, it kind of. Um, but I mean, so so, so there, there was the kind of technical side that allowed you to um, allow these dreams to occur uh, and these ambitions. And uh, oh yeah, we've got a we've got half a side of an album left. Let's do a mini opera. Let's sling three numbers together. You know, whatever it might be. So it's a, yeah, I think it just came out of the environment. It allowed you this success. If it, and you have to have that imagination, obviously. Um, but it allowed you to it allowed you to um, indulge your imagination a lot more. You know, I mean, he he outlined what he was, you know, Tommy and what he was going to do with Tommy before he'd actually done anything, didn't he? He'd outlined it in an interview with Rolling Stone. That's right, yeah. I mean, that's a, you know, there's a danger to that as well, isn't there? I know, I know. I've got this great idea. <laughs> and, and, and it's the kind of thing where if you weren't, by that time, if you weren't your own boss in the studio, a, a producer, and certainly a, a commercially-minded producer, would say, forget it, you know. So was um, was there was there really problems in the studio between the band when they were when when he was developing that because the ideas you know I mean he he'd already put out his ideas in a way and then he's going to go in the studio with the others um, and I presume then there then conflicts can arise so how was that process for the band I I, I think I mean I don't one one can only glean from what you read from various angles but. Um, I think because they'd achieved, before they got to the point of Tommy, for instance, they'd achieved a, a, enough commercial success, mainly on the back of Pete's enthusiasms, to to take take it as a fair bet. If Pete said, we'll do this, they, they, they were quite happy to get along with it. I mean, Roger Daltrey, for instance, was, had he not been in The Who, would have been a straight down the line, I'm... I feel would have been straight down the line, mid sixties rock singer ended up on the cabaret circuit or something. You know, he's very straight, mainstream, not even mainstream in the kind of uh, when rock and roll became or beat music became rock with a capital R. He wouldn't have even crossed into that era, into that um, division. I don't think. He, he, whereas in the environment that the 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 the, the, the he created or, or or was the main main creator of he went he was happy to go along with it because it was succeeding by then you know i mean i think they had they had more arguments about 
style and so on earlier on when it seemed to be some Pete's ideas were kind of seemed bizarre. And I think people like Keith Moon, as long as it, as long as musically he, he can enjoy it, he went on with it, you know what I mean? It, it wasn't as if any, it wasn't as if the music had shifted to something ultra complex or ultra staid or ultra serious. It was still the who, you know what I mean? You, you have the feeling you do have the feeling that Townsend couldn't have been Townsend without Daltrey, and Daltrey couldn't have been Daltrey oh, without no, Townsend. Absolutely, it's like Lennon and McCartney, just like Lennon and McCartney. They, 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 they were quite different, and had they gone off on their own on their own route, it would have been quite different. No, no, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned earlier that when you were in a band, and then and you got married and and had children, then that whole idea of touring and being on a stage. And having that freedom that you can have changed. Um, with them, it does seem like Entwistle and, and uh, Moon uh, needed oh, that yeah. freedom. That's um, right. And they lived for that moment yeah. to be on the stage. Yeah, can, you, yeah. can you tell me about what, what you found out about that? Well, lots of characters are like that. And, and I, I think it was purely that they... they found their creativity, for want of a better word, actually in that in that moment and sitting in the studio, if you like, reproducing it again was a lesser a lesser thrill. Whereas with something like Townsend, the thrill was in the studio more than bashing it out on stage seemingly the same every night when you could hear yourself with kids screaming, you know. So it, it, was, a, it was a different kind of dynamic for, um, you know, so, so some... Rock and rollers are primarily performers, and others are primarily people who do it in the studio. You know, now I mean, they, they, the who were part of that process of that that developing into that. Um, I mean, for myself, it was just that I couldn't see that particular band conquering the world. You know what I mean? And so I wasn't going to kind of go back on the road for two years and all the kind of the discomfort as well as the as well as the comfort but there uh, is a grounding when you have uh, a family and oh, then, absolutely, and then yeah. they're not grounded yeah. and so how did that play into the you know eventual death of keith moon and the the eventual death much later of course of john yeah. entwistle well i don't know i mean whether it's the i mean the self-indulgence that one allowed oneself on the road presumably that you know Daltrey and Townsend had access to that just as much, uh, but they were they they were more grounded characters, I suppose, in their own way. It's who knows. Um, I mean, all we've got to go on is the, is the evidence, and a lot of it's kind of hearsay. Obviously, the more outlandish evidence, but um, I don't think. Uh, I mean, this happens so many times in, in in not just rock and roll but in all sorts of artistic pursuits you know that um why have you got the why is one painter like a struggling genius who commits suicide and another painter of the same level carries on till he's nearly 90 like david hockney you know <laughs> but you know it just happens doesn't it we can't because they all came from the same environment if you like well, similar environments and the same enthusiasms and the same temptations. I mean, there's many um, crazy and wild stories 
within the Who story. Uh, and one of them is uh, their performance and Pete Townsend's reaction when they played at Woodstock and oh, when yeah, yeah. a fan came on stage. Yeah, yeah. Well, it wasn't a fan. It was uh, Abby Hoffman. It was uh, well. I suppose he, he called himself a fan, but I mean, he was he, he was notorious as a one of the um, the yippies, uh, the youth, the youth. Uh, I forget they called something something party. Anyway, it's just kind of radical. We know what it was, but the, the, the he um, yeah he jumped on the stage and uh, and started kind of joining in on it, trying to you know. And I, oh, no, that's right. He joined on the stage and he started yelling about freeing John Sinclair, who is an activist who is in jail for, for some spurious. The police found him with half a joint or something. And he was in jail anyway. And I remember John Lennon did some be John Sinclair things around the same time. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, he started yelling in the middle of their set or between numbers about John Sinclair and and, and and Townsend just like, who didn't have a great time for the hippies anyway, uh, just literally flung him off the stage and bashed him with his guitar. And, and of course, at the time, it was great because Townsend was actually wearing this very anti-hippie clobber. You know, he had this white white working man suit on and huge bother boots. You know, what the, what the, what the uh, you know, usually later adopted as bother boots. Uh, and kicked him off the stage. Um, so it's quite, yeah, it's quite amusing. What were the re repercussions of that? Did it actually sort of play into them, uh, into their sort of <laughs> legendary status in a way of being sort of the wild men of rock? Well, I think it did because, because, because on the one hand, the, the, the whole hippie thing was, was supposed to be back in 1969, was still kind of revolutionary and, uh, it, it, it's it's bad banner if you like it was the Rolling Stone magazine, um, and suddenly this guy who was had become one of the kind of mouthpieces via my generation and all that a bit like Bob Dylan you know Bob Dylan hated all that and uh, famously beat that guy up that used to go through his dustbins you know uh, they hated all that apparently um, Dylan had a, a sign outside his house when he lived in Woodstock. That said, um, uh, if you ain't if you ain't got an invite, you're not welcome. And a picture of a gun. <laughs> yeah, very peace and love. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's, and, and so Townsend was kind of if you like of that kind of frame of mind. And of course, things like Rolling Stone, Wallard, and all that hippie thing at the time they they changed radically later. Uh, and so it's quite a kind of a shock thing that one of their mouthpieces, i.e. Abby Hoffman, was thrown off the stage by another of their heroes, Pete Townsend, you know. But, um, yeah, but it, it did, it, 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 as you say, it did um, extend their image as, as, as the wild men of rock into that into into that fold as well, you know what I mean? I mean, in the hippie bands were a fairly safe bet, you know. In the mid-70s, when Tommy was filmed and Ken Russell came on board as the director and this became a massive hit, was I was trying to sort of look at where the turning point might have been for the band in terms of, you know, often a band uh, is over before the official 
over. Do you know what I mean? And that the turning point comes at an at another era. Where do you think that was? And was that in relation to the massive success that Tommy had? I think I think Tommy, and we'll never know this, obviously, but I think Tommy, the movie, was more of an indulgence or, or more of a, a vehicle. Uh, a sympathetic vehicle for, for for Roger Daltrey, in a way, it fed into his kind of showbiz aspirations, if you like. Whereas I, I think some of the extravagances involved, the visual extravagance and the the BGs and all sorts of things, you know, I think that sort of uh, wasn't really Townsend. You know what I mean? It wasn't Tommy as he originally. It, it was so exaggerated and over the top as all those Ken Russell, Ken Russell things were. Whereas I think Daltrey, and we never know this unless you asked him face to face, I think he was probably more uh, comfortable with with what was going on, you know. It was much more show busy, wasn't it? Yeah, no, totally. And I think, yeah, I you can know. see that point. Yeah, that it's actually, yeah. that fits him much yeah. better. I mean, exactly. They obviously knew that uh, Keith Moon was completely <laughs> wild and and uh, drug uh, obsessed or whatever you want to call it. He was really into drugs. Um, how much did they try and help him? And were they then not surprised by his death? I think the problem with all that is that even though you might have one person in a band who's doing all that over the top. If if the others are doing it to a kind of more manageable degree, then they don't really see the they don't see the problems more obviously than the outsider would. You know what I mean? Like if if Keith Moon was completely out of it every night and couldn't play, then they they'd see there's a problem. But while it was still working in terms of the band, uh, and they'd be half out of it anyway, um, then then. It's only in retrospect that they can be clever enough to say, oh, well, I knew he was taking too much of this and doing too much of that. But at the time, you just kind of laugh it all off. I, I'm, I'm just finishing a book at the moment uh, about Fleetwood Mac, which is, um, as it happens, not not in the light of Christine's death. It, we, we'd started it way before that, but, but in the light of her death, that's a, obviously the last portion of the book changes <laughs> but 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 doing that and they were you know notorious in the studio of just sitting up all night sniffing coke and then starting to record about three in the morning when they were completely out of it you know this is on rumors you know which is their greatest creation but i mean at the time they, they were all doing it so they didn't you know there, there was you, you couldn't point the finger at one was doing it worse than the other and then Later in life, they obviously say, oh, you know, I don't know how we got through it and all that. They're quite honest about it. That, that, that particular crowd, you know, that it's, it, oh, I don't know how we got through it. But um, <clears throat> but at the time, you could see that if if there was a Keith Moon there, they, they wouldn't have noticed. They just all, all at it, you know. So I don't, I, I don't think there's any... From what one gleans... If one of them was a bit more cautious about that, it was it was again. It was Mister Professional. It was it, it was Daltrey. He, he'd go to bed before the others, you know that kind of thing. Um, uh, again, that tells you something, you know. 
I mean, the eighties were a but, sort but, of. But, but Pete seemed as wild as Mooney on on lots of occasions, and conversely, at that that time I met Mooney in the thing. He was just half a pint of half a pint of beer, you know, like. <laughs> Have you met Jimmy? <laughs> but it's like, you know, it's kind of like nobody is that out of it all the time as they never work, you know what I mean? Yeah. The the the, the 80s were a period where there was the sort of the wilderness for them in the sense that the stadiums are obviously gone when they're when they're not with the band. And yeah. um and having a different life, how did they how did Daltrey and Townsend deal with that different life during that period? Um, well, they all famously did their other projects, if you like. Um, I mean, with, with with Daltrey, it was partly just private things like his, his, his farm and his this, that and the other. You know what I mean? He lives not far from here. I live in Hastings and he lives just down the road near Rye. Um, but um, yeah, so, so, so they, they all indulge in their, in their private lives, uh, and um, creatively, obviously, Pete took off on quite a few, which we which we refer to in the book, various projects like the the the, 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 the life house things and all that that the other guys weren't involved in particularly, um, and then they would occasionally less occasionally as time went on and especially after Entwistle sort of died as well um, occasionally they'd get together if the occasion occurred and often, often now it's just special things like like Daltrey's um, teenage cancer thing which which for a while was 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 a, a big concert every year they still do it but often not with his not with his performance not, not they don't get the who together for that they still have an annual teenage cancer big concert in Hyde Park or somewhere you just don't happen to have the, the who doesn't get together for it every year you know what, what do you think the the legacy of the who can be said to be today in retrospect in the way that they may have influenced the artists or genres that came after them well immediately as I as I said before they influenced punk I mean, physically influenced in the sense of the way they played and the kind of the dynamic uh, where they differed from punk was that, or to the the, the punk ethos, was that they um, they could actually do the they respected the roots of the music as well. They respected rock and roll. They respected rhythm and blues. They respected elements that were even outside of that, like jazz and. Filtering around with classical music and so on, they they respected music, uh, and the punk ethos was that you didn't. I mean, they, they they fitted, and then of course when post punk came along, the new wave, and you were talking about Ian Jury and Elvis Costello and people who weren't particularly punks, but they rode that rode that um, rode that boom. They they fitted into that much more because they were kind of they're the kind of. They had the sort of punk dynamic, but with, but with much much more creative sensibilities, you know. So that kind of post-punk new wave thing, I think they they influenced, um, and obviously they influenced they influenced 
the dreaded progressive rock, which 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 occurred in parallel. But you know, because Pete Townsend does a mini opera, or oh, we can all do that. And you've got these things like Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds and all these kind of flamboyant it's a nonsense. <laughs> well, that's me, that's my opinion. <laughs> but you you know what I'm saying. Uh, so you got all that on the back of it that it kind of like it legitimized it, if you like, in 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 terms of rock with a capital R. Um, because Tommy was so marvelous, you know, the, the album and Quadrophenia. And the Quadrophenia movie, of course, which was like unlike the Tommy movie, was was much more of the spirit of of the of the original album, you know. I mean, in fact, that's what people remember now about Quadrophenia, is those images um of the of the movie, you know. <laughs> when when you write a book and you do a deep dive into the history of um, an act or an artist or whatever you're doing. And in this case, looking back at The Who, listening to all their albums, going really into, you know, looking at old interviews, looking at everything about them, um, you make a discovery for yourself that you hadn't had before. What discovery did you make uh, about The Who, which was new to you? Um, I had reminders. I'd forgotten, to be honest, I'd forgotten and this sounds very simple. I'd forgotten how good that first album was. <laughs> and I, it was just, I, honestly, because you're I, with a with a with a great band, you always there's a kind of assumption that the next album is better than or it's more developed or what have you. You know what I mean? Uh, but but you go back to the and then you go bloody hell. I mean, if you go back to please please me now, the Beatles' first album, it's so good. It's like and it's recorded today, but it's just. So good on it in its own right, regardless of how technically simple it was. And that first album of theirs is it, terrific. But but on a broader scale, what I discovered was that um, the converse of that, that, that they, and particularly Pete Townsend, was far more broad-based in their creativity that, that, than one immediately thinks. You know, you, you think of, oh, they're, they're, they're the mod band that, Got clever. They did Tommy. That was wonderful. They did Quadrophenia. That was right. But but then when you go into it in retrospect, there was a, a lot more going on, particularly with Town, Townsend's input. And you, uh, it's a pleasant surprise, you know. <laughs> well, Mike Evans, um, with the book The Who, much too much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much. And I and um, and for me, um, I've been a sort of superficial Who fan. I've like. Yeah. I know yeah. all the the milestones That's on the right, way. Yeah. So for me, it was a really uh, exciting read, and to find out something new about the band along the way was was a, a great um, journey and trip for yeah, me. I mean, so thank a, you very much. That's a, that, that's the um, satisfying thing about books like this. USAA Insurance to help you save. Take advantage of discounts when you cover your home and your ride. Discover how we're helping members save at usaa.com slash bundle. Restrictions apply. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, 
all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.